This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. See the latest designs from your favorite brands, including Thermador, at your local Ferguson showroom. Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 26, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Washington commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Um. So uh, just quickly, uh, we were talking about what we were going to talk about today, and I uh, am calling an audible because uh, even though uh, my son went off to his Jewish day school in blue and white, I had completely forgotten or hadn't sort of popped into my head that uh, today is uh, Israel's Independence Day, its 75th birthday, the... the, uh, you know, landmark moment uh, for the um, Jewish state, which was uh, incepted in 1948, and uh, something we should not only uh, take note of, but uh, be mindful of the fact that while there is a huge political story being played out in Israel, largely almost exclusively a domestic political story in Israel about the structure of its government and the nature of how political power uh, is exercised in the country, that uh, the single most unlikely event of the 20th century, which was the uh, uh, ingathering of the exiles and the creation of this um, utopian ideal uh, believed in uh, and sought by a stateless people for nearly two millennia came into being. And here it is 75 years later and whatever difficulties it may possess, it uh, it is the 27th wealthiest country on the planet Earth. It is a leader in um, 21st century advances in technology and it is uh a home for nine million citizens uh who have come to this it came to this uh, arid arid desert starting in the last third of the 19th century and have created this uh, astonishing miracle so uh important to make note of this absolutely uh elliot kaufman our uh occasional contributor to commentary has a wonderful piece in this morning's wall street journal where he uh writes uh 
a very evocative line calling Israel the world's most successful post-colonial state. And he's absolutely right. Um, and I would just want to dilate on one aspect of that success, which is economics and um, the development of startup nation. And I've been thinking about India recently, a world's largest democracy, also very religious, um, uh, also caught up in all of the geopolitical um, conflicts and rivalries in Eurasia. The one difference, other than size and religion, is the economy. And here I think the importance of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, can't be overstated, because it really was Netanyahu as a finance minister, and then as in his first uh, premiership in the 1990s, who began opening up the Israeli economy, um, introducing market mechanisms, competition, laying the groundwork for the sort of innovations that then took off in the first decades of this century and created the startup nation, uh, which has led to so much of, I think, Israel's um, uh, kind of um, soft power in this century, right? You should think that the state of Israel, which was so isolated for most of its 75 years, has now drawn... Um, a lot of different allies from all across the world. A lot of it is um, Israel's confidence, Israel's success, but another part of it is Israel's technology and smarts and market and innovation. And uh, the world wants pieces of that. And I, I think that can't be um, uh, ignored as Israel celebrates this, this wonderful occasion. Can I can I just add that not to bring us down into the crushing morosity of domestic politics on this on this matter, but the House of, Re of Representatives did pass a resolution um, yesterday yesterday I believe um, about uh, to celebrate is Israel's 75th Independence Day and celebrating the U.S. Israel bond. 18 Democrats, including the of course the entire squad and its fellow travelers, and one Republican, Thomas Massey, voted against it. Um, that strikes me as, as as indicative of two things. One, uh, the squad, of course, doubling down on its hatred of Israel and its 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 uh, in the case of many of its members, rank anti-Semitism, but also a kind of hatred of exactly what you just described, Matt Conetti. This this idea of a nation that comes out of nowhere and builds an, a thriving economy and is on the leading edge of of a great deal of technological development. Still, <clears throat> they don't like that either. <laughs> the free market is no, not, is not a, very... a fan. <clears throat> That is a uh, it's a very important point, and your an analogizing to India is a very important analogy because, of course, India came into being in the same year uh, as Israel, and both of them as a result of an anti-colonialist struggle against the British Empire. What was interesting about India, which of course was very heavily managed in the century or two before before um, independence was that it took the colonial administrative structure and turned it into its own governmental structure. So you had a colonialist, you had a, a country that had basically been organized administratively, and then you added to it uh, anti-colonialist, partially strongman, partially socialist, uh, partially anti-capitalist, uh, ideology and you put it all in a blender and you got this very heavily regulated 
state that um, under other circumstances could have been Singapore or South Korea or 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 a place like that, but has been laboring to deal with its unbelievably heavy centralized hand uh, since its since its creation. Israel was in somewhat the same situation in the sense that it came into being as an anti-colonialist state run by socialists. Um, But as it has progressed over the course of its 75 years, it has laboriously thrown over a lot of the shackles of its socialist ideology Uh, the extreme collectivism of its early years as typified by the kind of fantasy dream of a uh, totally egalitarian world of the kibbutz where you don't even get to, you know, be the parent to your own child. You, your children are raised collectively. Everything you do is collective, uh, which was a kind of, um, you know, fantasy vision of, socialism that uh, did not survive reality and now i think i don't know what it is a quarter of a percent of the population of israel lives on kibbutzim you have you have the the end of that experiment just like just desiccating over time because it was it's not uh it does not help with human flourishing and uh all kinds of things and then <clears throat> before bibi netanyahu starts deregulating the economy as finance minister something very interesting happens uh, which probably has something to do with the South Asian miracle or the Southeast Asian miracle. So in around 1990, the the cellular telephone becomes a thing. It's not really a thing here in the United States, but it's a thing. And uh, Israel's telephony was under the grip and under the thumb of the labor union, the Histadrut, which was the most the only really important non-governmental institution in Israel, uh, the Histadrut. And the Histadrut controlled <clears throat> telephony. And the country was like a sixth world country when it came to telephony. If you were an Israeli and you moved into an apartment and you needed to have a phone installed, it took three months for Bezek, the telephone monopoly, to come and install a telephone in your house. And what you had to do was go to a phone booth to make your phone calls. And you couldn't put a coin in the phone booth. You had to go somewhere else and buy a phone token called an Asimone to put it in the phone into the payphone to call somebody. So it was this incredibly laborious system that was, uh, you know, as often happens in these capture situations run for the benefit of the histadrut and not for the consumer. So the the cellular telephone comes in and uh, comes to Israel, and uh, the histadrut is paying no attention, doesn't know what's going on. It's got its own battles and things, and it's classically a hidebound, bureaucracy-laden organization. And within a year, 30 or 40% of Israelis have cell phones and the cost of the cell phone because of Nokia and whoever was introducing it was very low because you didn't have to pay for your phone call. If you did it inside the borders of Israel before 
Bezek and Histadrut knew it, everybody in Israel had a cell phone. And ain't nobody going to take away your cell phone once your cell phone is in your hand. Like any effort, if they can't, they didn't realize what was happening to them, they were this, the power of, of the Histadrut was destroyed by technological innovation that it could not uh, put a pillow over, you know, it could not suffocate in the crib. Um, and there is a huge lesson in that for everybody and everything and the start of the nation and all of that, which is, you know, there are ways to get around the worst impulses of, you know, of bureaucracy and regulation and, uh, you know, top-down administration. Um, and those are the things to look for if you're in a, if you're in an overregulated economy and Israel almost by accident saved itself and became this immensely wealthy country, uh, relatively speaking, particularly given where it was in the first 50 years of its existence, kind of by accident, you know, almost by accident because, uh, people did what they normally do, which is that they look after their own interests and, and aren't, and aren't prevented from doing so, um, found a way to do this without being prevented from doing so by, uh, you know, by a mindset that was, I think, best reflected once by something that a close friend of mine said, uh, an Israeli friend of mine said in the 80s, when, uh, I can't remember what the specific circumstances were, but I was talking about changing jobs or something like that. And he was like, you can just do that? And I said, yes, or something. And he said, but, you know, if that's the case, then any then every, anybody can do anything. And I was like, yeah, that's what liberty means, that all things being equal, and if you're not hurting somebody else or, you know, ru you know doing something illegal, you kind of should be able to do what you want as a, as a functional adult. And, and, you know, he had been so, um, he'd been so bathed in the amniotic fluid of the collectivist socialism of Israel's first 40 years that this came as a great shock to him so uh anyway th there are lessons there too that are that don't speak to the israeli miracle which of course it, it, again is about uh the fact that the jewish people survived without a state for two millennia which itself is a you know is a something that uh, has an has for many of us a mystical and religious and supernatural uh causation uh, and that this ingathering <clears throat> happened, and that uh, and that uh, as as the great scholar Gershom Sholem uh, uh, once said uh, in my house when I was a kid, he was a friend of my my parents, and somebody said, "What? I don't understand. Like Jews never fought. Jews weren't in armies. How did Israel develop such, you know?" An astonishing army that it could win the Six Day War the way it won the Six Day War in 1967. And Sholem said, "You know, Jews are a talented people, and what they 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 got what they needed when they needed it in order to survive. And that's always been the story of the Jewish people. And here is this surviving and thriving on the on the part of Israel. But I think we 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 can't simply pass over." That we're a political podcast, and I'm, you know, whatever. We can't pass over the fact that um, 
this shouldn't have happened. Israel should not exist. It, you know, as a matter of geopolitics, as a matter of, you know, standard issue, the way the world works. And um, something happened here that 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 goes beyond, you know, our ability to entirely capture it as part of a mid early to mid 20th century political event. You know, two, there were 5,000 things that had to happen for Israel well, it to is, come into being. And it all happened. It is a biblical event. I mean, it is, it is, it is as, as, as written. Yeah. Just, uh, can I make one more um, observation about the differences between Israel and India? And um, that is in relationship to the United States. So um, there are, you know, profound uh, theological um, connections between the United States and Israel. Michael Oren traces them in his wonderful history of uh, U.S. Middle East <clears throat> uh, relations, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, about 20 years old now, incredible to think so. Um, uh, Harry Truman, of course, recognized the state of Israel upon its founding. Um, but uh, Israel chose, especially after uh, the 67 war, to align itself with the United States and in the context of Cold War politics. And I think that alignment and alliance and friendship and amity has been also critical to Israel's success over time. I think it's also helped America because it kind of grounds us um, in this biblical <laughs> tradition um, and and keeps us um, involved and interested in the Middle East for reasons other than oil, which Israel doesn't have. Right. That's the that's, that's the higher now. Right. Right. It does doesn't now. now. But um but India, the other post-colonial state, very consciously wanted to be non-aligned, wanted to play both sides. In fact, was much friendlier in many ways to the USSR uh, than was the other uh kind of offshoot of decolonization on the subcontinent, Pakistan, which ended up being coming more closely aligned with us during the Cold War. And I think we can, if there's a, uh, what I worry about in the relationship is because of trends here that Christine was picking up on, especially in the Democratic Party moving away from Israel, um, and trends in Israel, uh, a sense of uh, difference or also a sense of that which is probably true, Israel doesn't really need the United States in a lot of ways any longer, that that relationship may atrophy and Israel be, may become more non-aligned um, uh, in, the, in the coming years, which would be horrible, I think, uh, both uh, for Israel and the United States. Um, I mean, that's an important point. If you, uh, you, you evoked Michael Oren's uh, book. Uh, we should also mention Walter Russell Mead's recent book, The Ark of a Covenant, which also deals with this uh, relationship dating back uh, to 150, 100 and some 70 years before Israel's founding uh, to, you know, to the the Old Testament nature of the way in which uh, the founders viewed the American experiment. So we have two points of commonality that make the United States and Israel uniquely allied that are not that that Roger, but that it makes it it's understandable that people who do not believe in American exceptionalism also are hostile to the American Israel relationship because 
<clears throat> these are two, we are two creedal countries. The United States is a country based on a series of relatively abstract ideas about the, about how, uh, how people should govern themselves that had never really been tried on the planet earth before 17, before 1776. Have they been tried imperfectly? Have there been problems with our constitutional structure and, and the horror of slavery and, you know, failures to live up to the view of what, what things should be in the declaration and the constitution, of course, but the ideas that undergird them, that was a, that was the most revolutionary aspect of the American revolution, that this was not a blood and soil country. It was a country based on an, on a series of ideals. And that is one of the reasons that they were proto-Zionists, all of the founders, and they learned Hebrew a lot. You know, John Adams was fluent in biblical Hebrew, and so was James Madison. Why was this the case? Because they were looking to sources beyond Europe, beyond medieval and even enlightenment Europe to find the thing that they, that we could be and to find a vision, a non, uh, you know, a non-pagan vision, let's say Greek and Roman, a non-pagan vision of, of, of a, of a, a well-ordered society. And Israel comes around in 1948 as the ultimate creedal country, because it, the connection, I mean, even though you could say it's the most mystical blood and soil connection because it is a connection dating back two millennia before the expulsion, the, you know, the the expulsion from the Holy Land in, in the second century uh, uh, BCE, or CE, as we say in, uh, <laughs> in Jewish text. Um, but nonetheless, like, it's this other creedal country, and there are very few creedal countries. Um, one other creedal country, you could say, was the formation of the Soviet Union based on the Russian Empire, and it didn't survive uh, because its creed was evil. So uh, we we are we have this bond. It's a you know the mystic chords of memory uh, that uh, that Abraham Lincoln evoked. Um, these mystic chords aren't memory; they're real. This is a real bond between. Uh, Israel and the United States, and if you hate the United, the creed of the United States, you're going to feel pretty lousy about Israel's creed, also. And so, uh, in that sense, Israel is the canary in the coal mine for the Democratic Party and for the left, because uh, people who feel the way about Israel that such people feel, if it's not rooted in anti-Semitism, which was the case with a lot of the right-wing dislike of Israel. It's rooted in a hatred of the of these creeds of the American well, Zionist creed. I yeah, well, I would say it's that that's also anti-Semitism. I mean, it's yeah. uh, it, you know, sure, yeah. Well, oh, I don't mean to, yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah. No, of that course, for the right, for the right can the right can feel very positive about the American experience. Some parts of the right can feel very, you know. American patriotic American and yet hate Israel. Whereas uh, I think on the left, there is no such, you don't, you don't hate Israel and, and love America. If you're on the left, if you hate, if you hate Israel, you probably hate America also in some fundamental sense. Yeah. Although um, there's, there's, there's sort of a middle way now actually being forged for you. If, if that's what you want to do, because 
yeah. because you can yeah. sort of love the the uh, the saving democracy liberalism America, yeah. and and right. and and hate uh, <clears throat> hate Israel. I just want to mention also just because because Matt brought up Pakistan, which is something I think about, which is a country that came about at the same time. Um, uh, uh, partitioned off for uh, a, a a religious uh, uh, people of one, one religion, um, and it has been more or less a nightmare ever since. Um, uh, uh, unfree, um, uh, terrorist, uh, Disneyland, uh, uh, playing around with nuclear brinksmanship uh, constantly, and no one is devoting their lives to being anti-Pakistan, uh, you know. Well, in this about country, a billion Indians. Well, no, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm talking about Americans <laughs> right. and, and, and yeah. Western liberals is what, is what I'm saying. Got it. Me. It is, it is not, their, not their cause at all. Yeah. Um, well, you know, so anyway, uh, happy 75th anniversary to Israel uh, and, uh, and, uh, I, I'm not one of those people who wants to get all sentimental and say, oh, it's so great. There's so the protests in Israel testify to its strength. Cause I don't, I'm, you know, that, that sentimentality is not something that I, I really want to endorse or participate in, but, um, you know, it, it is the case that in, in most other free societies, uh, the, the, the scenes on the street of, uh, uh, streets of Tel Aviv, um, in particular, would be tantamount to a, um, you know, to the sort of the the end of of uh, of the governing consensus in, in 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 Israel. And I'm not really, I don't really think that's 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 the case, despite uh, efforts by some radicals there to to move in that direction. Before we go on, let me talk to you about if you have a 75th Israel birthday present you want to give to somebody, maybe you want to look at ball and branch sheets because you wake up feeling rested and refreshed in the softest, most luxurious sheets from Bowl and Branch, the bedding expert. They make the highest quality sheets with incredible craftsmanship. Each sheet set slow made for an unmatched softness with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash. Buttery to the touch, super breathable, so they're perfect for both cooler and warmer weather. Designed to feel incredible for all sleepers, made without toxins. Come in 10 versatile colors and all sizes, from twin up to California king. Ball and Brad sheets fit the deepest of mattresses. They're labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Ball and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. So sleep better at night with Ball and Branch sheets. Get 15% off your first order when you use promo code COMMENTARY at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code COMMENTARY. <clears throat> Exclusions apply. See site for details. Uh, so um, let's move away from presidential politics and let's go to congressional politics, even though that's part of presidential politics, the debt ceiling, the point at which the United States uh, hits its uh, uh, ability to borrow uh, or to issue debt to cover its own expenses um, uh, is going to be reached in June and July and August. In fact, it was technically reached in January, uh, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, because that's the beginning of the year, 
Um, but emergency measures can be taken uh, by the Secretary of the Treasury to Bob, to do play accounting games <clears throat> so that the bill doesn't come due and the need to uh, increase uh, the debt ceiling uh, comes about. Uh, my, 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 the analogy I've used on the show before every year when we talk about this, I'm going to use again. There's an episode of The Odd Couple, my favorite television show, when uh, Oscar owes Felix money. And uh, Felix pays off a debt because he has a gambling debt and he owes Felix money and he hands him the money, hands him $900. And Felix says, where did you get this money? And Oscar says, well, I hawked my saxophone. And Felix says, I didn't know you played the saxophone. And Oscar says, I don't. I just keep it for hawking. <laughs> so that's the debt ceiling. <laughs> The debt ceiling and 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 the games are played. The debt ceiling is this, you know, I, somewhere somewhere the secretary of the treasury has a saxophone that she can hawk in order to stave off the disaster of the United States government no longer being able to you know, fulfill its uh, elementary economic responsibilities. That is the extent of my sophisticated analysis. I think that's of the, the debt ceiling fight. It's the uh, trillion dollar coin that many progressives have been wanting to mint since yeah. the uh, debt ceiling uh, has assumed such prominence in our political life about a decade ago with the standoff between Obama and uh, the then Tea Party Republicans running the House. Now we have a standoff between Biden and um, the Trump Republicans in the House. And uh, we're in a very important moment um, uh, because Biden has refused to negotiate and um, it, the Democrats think this is a winning hand. Uh, Biden thinks that he can just insist on a clean debt ceiling increase and that as the clock keeps ticking and as we approach the uh, moment where default could occur, where credit agencies are likely downgrade our bond rating, uh, the Republicans will fold. Now, Kevin McCarthy um, has been desperate to get Biden to some sort of negotiating table where they can wrangle about the budget and maybe increase the um, debt limit uh, as part of those negotiations. But Biden won't budge. And so this bill, the Limit Save Grow Act, uh, which the House leadership has put together, is kind of the um, critical ingredient, uh, ingredient in the recipe for getting Biden to open up some sort of negotiations. Because even though Democrats feel as though they don't need to do anything, there has been some pressure and some anxiety among uh, congressional Democrats. There's always some anxiety among Democrats um, that the politics might not go in their direction. And the truth is, Americans are concerned about spending. Um, McCarthy is doing a good job, I think, uh, presenting himself as a good faith negotiator, saying, look, you know, we, we, we think we need we need to do some reforms of the budget, cut some spending, and we want to work with you. And Biden looks like he's being obstructionist. And if they can pass this bill, the Limit Save Grow Act, then I think it really goes uh, to Biden and puts um, the pressure on Biden to to uh, to look uh, like he is able to negotiate and compromise. And so uh, we're expecting a vote on this bill in the next twenty four hours in the House. Uh, there have been some changes to the bill in order to um, make it more palatable uh, to, the, to the conference. It's not going to become law, but it's it, if it passes, 
the House, it's a sign that Republicans are on the same page and can enter these potential negotiations um, unified. Yeah, that I think Biden is taking a riskier gamble than certainly than it's been portrayed in the press and that that I think a lot of uh, analysts are, are acknowledging because uh, so McCarthy, I think, uh, needs if he has four defections on this, he's toast, right? For he's got to keep that very difficult coalition together. But he, as Matt says, he's made some compromises. He's kind of cobbled this thing together. Biden's gamble is interesting to me, and I, I know you guys talked about his presidential campaign announcement yesterday, but he doesn't talk about the economy at all in that announcement. People are very concerned about it. He he went pure culture war stuff, pure, oh, I'm for freedom, anti-MAGA, you know, they burn books, et cetera, et cetera. He is absolutely betting on the Republican Party remaining a chaotic, disrupted, uh, ma- torn apart by MAGA sort of group. And if if McCarthy can keep this weird coalition together on this point, that kind of proves the lie to that argument at the same time that it shows Biden not really caring that much about the economy at a moment where people are, as Matt says, linking the government spending to rising inflation, to the to the continued pressure they feel on a day to day basis with the fact that, you know, the Republicans are also going to start churning out messages, regardless of who's the candidate for president, that remind people that, you know, they've lost about eight thousand dollars a year since Biden became president due to inflation and wages not keeping up with inflation. Those are those people listen to that. So we'll see if if this gamble on McCarthy's part pays off. But Biden doesn't really have a response if it does. I'm uh, I'm more um, nihilistic about the Republican behavior, uh, basically, because of the Republican behavior over the last 10 years or really, really, most importantly, since Trump took over the Republican Party. Um, Trump is the best friend Biden has in this fight because uh, he didn't care about spending. He didn't care about the deficit, care about nothing. He didn't care about restraining the size of government. Uh, You know, he this is not his bailiwick and he's running a reelection campaign on the idea that anybody who wants to touch any form of spending that he likes is a monster who wants to kill people and is horrible and. Um, and the entire Republican Party went along with him, and because he did have uh, Mitch McConnell uh, and you know uh, others, uh, you know, sort of in his camp, figuring out how to structure uh, spending uh, in order to um, not raise these moments of horrible contradiction, but push a kicking this can of the annual. Uh, debt limit fight, you know, into the future. Um, I, I don't know why Biden has to move. There's a simple fact of the matter, which is the debt ceiling has to be raised. If the debt ceiling is not raised, the full faith and credit of the United States is at risk. In 2011, the United States is uh, Moody's downgraded the uh, bond rating of the United States because of the debt ceiling fight then. Uh, that was viewed as some kind of favor to Obama by certain conservative Republicans who just wanted Republicans to fight. But there is no appetite for a battle royale in the United States over federal spending. There's no evidence of it. Yes, people don't ask, you know, in theory, do they think the government spends too much? The answer is yes. If you go to particulars about what the government spends, with the exception of foreign aid, from what I can tell, 
uh, there are constituencies for every single dollar spent uh, by the by the federal government, and nobody wants to you know face those down. And this has to happen. So McCarthy is having a fight here that is perfectly fine, but it's actually it obscures the Republican responsibility for its own financial irresponsibility and is trying to kind of rewrite things on the fly and standing outside this fight, looking in, looking for whatever possible benefit he can get from it is Trump, who will attack Republicans, who will attack Democrats, who will attack anybody for anything. And and uh, and and that's so, you know, I, I'm not saying I think it's contemptible that Kevin McCarthy is trying to leverage the you know the debt ceiling fight to make a stand on 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 spending, but um, you know I he's one of these he is he is the Republican Party writ small in the sense that when the party was a cut party as it was in 2011, he was there, and when it became a I don't care Trump can spend like a drunken sailor, he was there, and now that Biden's president, he's in the oh you are so irresponsible with our money. And, I, you know, he's just not a good tribune for this message. I mean, look, I mean, this happened. This is the third time this has happened. Whenever you get into the situation of a Democratic president and Republican Congress, it's been three times now. Republicans are going to use the debt ceiling as their only point of leverage in order to enact some type of budget reform. <clears throat> it typically, it doesn't necessarily go well for them politically, but by the time of the next election, a lot of that political damage has uh, dissipated. And so they don't really feel the cost, right? If you think about it, in 1995, we had the government shutdown, right? Again, over debt ceiling politics. 1996, Bob Dole doesn't win, but uh, the GOP Congress is reelected. In 2011, we have the uh, fight over the debt ceiling. We end up with the sequester. Um, the Republicans viewed their sequester as a win. I didn't because it's savage defense, but they viewed it as a win. And sure, Mitt Romney doesn't win in 2012, uh, but the Republicans still control the House. So they don't feel any cost from having this fight, which we've had before, and we're just going down uh, the road, same road again. I will say this, though. If you want Trump to stay out of this fight, the McCarthy strategy is the way to go, because what Trump has been silent on this. McCarthy is always trying to keep the party unified. That has always been his uh, goal. It's what caused all the ruckus in uh, and all the multiple votes to get him elected speaker, but he was elected speaker. He's doing the same thing here. So, you know, entitlements are not on the table, right? So that means that's a sop to Trump. Um, here he's brought in the Iowa delegation. They want to keep the ethanol subsidies that are in the inflation Reduction Act, so-called. And he said, fine, we're going to keep the ethanol subsidies. Meanwhile, Matt Gates and the um, Freedom Caucus and Ultramaga folks are coming in and they're saying, well, we need work requirements on Medicaid recipients and food stamp recipients right now, this year. And McCarthy goes, fine. He knows that it's never going to become law, so just give it to him. Where Trump will become involved and become destructive is if this bill fails Nothing happens, and the only way we can possibly get out of this situation is some type of gang activity in the Senate and Mitch McConnell's involvement. That's when Trump will start throwing uh, wrenches into the machinery. So I actually think that the best hope we have for a relatively safe debt ceiling increase, maybe even with some budget reforms, because 
uh, the truth is this proposal is not the radical let's slash everything, balance the budget in 10 years. It's basically freezing to discretionary spending. Um, it's getting it's res, uh, rescinding a lot of the unspent COVID obligations, which are important. It's getting it's aiming at the student debt relief, right, uh, which is a priority, which may actually you know go away anyway if the Supreme Court says uh, that it's an unconstitutional exercise of presidential authority. Um, there are some Democrats like Joe Manchin in the Senate and like Jared Golden in the House from Maine who are interested in some aspects of this bill. So I, I, I would much rather have it resolved through McCarthy uh, than I, I would uh, relying on the Senate, which would end up, I think, just exacerbating the tensions in the party and also drawing Trump into the fight. Look, I think that's an important political analysis. But in the in the end, the debt ceiling has to be increased. And the question is, what happens if all of this goes sideways? And then we're going to have 2011, but 2011 is going to have looked like a tea, par- uh, you know, garden party compared to what's going to happen now, because you're going to have this. Uh, the Republicans have a tiny majority in the House. You will have you will have to see four or five or six Republicans cross over the line to pass a debt ceiling you know, to pass the debt ceiling, if McCarthy opposes it, uh, they will all be uh, targeted for destruction by by the MAGA people if that happens. So they're going to be too afraid to do it. They're going to want McCarthy to be the one to make a backdoor deal with McConnell and the Senate Democrats to, you know, just get this done. And uh, whether this is June or it's August, uh uh the remarkably the atmosphere in washington is so much more poisonous than it was in 2011 um and uh and of course obama in 2010 had been dealt a very powerful message that he had gone too far and he wasn't operating from the strongest position that he could possibly have been in having lost 63 seats in the house and when all came due, they did the sequester because he he didn't have the con- the country didn't have his back in the debt ceiling fight either. Biden comes at this after a Republican disappointment in the midterms when it does not appear that their message, though they are they have this the the, the slenderest majority in American political history, that this message has that they that their message has a big popular uh, populist force behind it and then you have this question of the leader of the republican party on the outside who fundamentally is not with this fight now he's not with it because he's got his own agenda whatever his agenda is his agenda but um at any given moment he can blow everything up in some weird sense if he's polling at 50 or 55 percent and then he says, I don't like what Kevin McCarthy is doing or whatever. I don't even know what he would say. I don't know what the moment would be. Um, and then, you know, oddly, then Trump is again Biden's best friend because it's the Republican chaos that will maybe rightly be blamed for the fact that the full faith and credit of the United States government is going to be at risk. Yeah, but that that's Biden's, I mean... Biden will cite that whether or not Trump opens his mouth if if uh, if 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 the Republicans can't pull this off if they can't get their act together in time. I mean that is that is yeah that's his biggest. 
you know, I mean, you keep saying you keep saying that we can't have a default, but I think the truth is we actually can, and we may, and uh, and if that, but happens, then at some point the default well, ends because well, we cannot. I the government the government can't function if the ceiling isn't raised. I I, I know, okay. but yeah. I, I also think that the economic fallout of a default would not just affect Republicans; it would also affect Biden. I don't think Biden wants to be the first president of the United States to preside over the default of our credit. I mean, that um, he can blame the Republicans all he wants. He's still the president of the United States, and he already has a huge economic problem. So I do think it's not he can't just sit on the sidelines forever. I, I really I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, um, and so and also just on Trump, I, right now, Trump, I think, is fine with what Republicans are doing because Republicans want the good deal. They're fighting for yeah. the deal. Right. The issue is with they are seen to cave and get a weak deal. And that will happen if it goes over to the Senate and the Senate Republican leadership is involved in crafting some compromise. That's when Trump is going to start attacking right. the Republicans. And if McCarthy is implicated in that, then McCarthy's speakership might be in danger. But right now... Because they're fighting for a good deal. I mean, remember, Trump was president and shut down his own government. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. And typically, you know, the cliche in Washington is the side that shuts down the government loses. But I, I feel as though that's somewhat overwrought because it, they lose in the short term. But in the medium term, it, it, th- people forget things go back to normal. A default is something different. And I do think that the president would be implicated in some way if you had, and that actually suggests to me that one possible um, resolution would be some type of, again, probably unconstitutional executive action that would then be litigated. And by the time it's litigated, uh, the actual budget process is worked out. I mean, with, I think you can easily see that coin. Right. It's a trillion no, dollar coin, is, or I'm going to spend is, the it money it anyway. Is within, it's I always his it escape is, patch. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that I mean, that may I, be the likely it, outcome. I think it is within one of the reasons that this fantasy of the trillion dollar coin, which is basically just inflating the currency in one gigantic fell swoop, to to have dollar bills to pay past debts right that's what the trillion dollar coin is so at a moment in which we are going through a you know inflationary it's not really a spiral we're like locked into a relatively high inflation rate while the fed is desperately trying to close it down the coin the the million the trillion dollar coin uh anyway go ahead I was just going to add the the other thing that strikes me and again I know I keep going back to the presidential announcement that Biden made this was the guy who ran on if you recall I I know Washington. I've worked across the aisle. I'm the guy who can get in there and make make real deals with people. Reach reach across the aisle because we're all Americans. Remember that? Remember that Biden campaign yeah. and just a few years ago. He's as 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 Matt says. I think there is a real cost to him if he just digs in his heels and says, "Ah, I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to negotiate." Like he he's already seen is not completely competent at doing the job that he was elected to the first time. So he's got to actually show he can do something, have some well, Im- okay. impact there. Look, what Matt said, what you're saying is obviously correct in this sense, which is Obama tried this. This was Obama's line in 2011, which is blather all you like and da 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 da. You know, first we protect the United States and then we'll sit down and have a talk. But what you're doing is just, you're all crazy and irresponsible. 
And then in the end, he was compelled to negotiate and they came up with this sequester and the debt ceiling went through and that happened. So this gambit was tried in in 2011 and in some sense Obama failed with it. It didn't it didn't scare the Republicans sufficiently or you know or you know the leverage of the banks and Wall Street and all of that. It, it, we're now in 2023. That is way less than it was on Republicans in 2011. Like let's put it this way like Republican green eye shade responsibility does not exist anymore so that appealing to Republicans by saying, yeah, the, the Democrats are big spenders and irresponsible. But look, we got to keep the economy humming. That's how we get jo- you know, you're 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 gonna interfere with this. That was a very potent message to a lot of Republicans in 2011. I don't know who outs, you know, who in the Republican Party, I mean, all things being equal, normal Republican congressmen believe that are still main streeters, but you know. That has no sway, right? That 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 kind of line. Look, you're here just to you can't close the government down. They're like, why not? Sure, why not? What the hell? Um, and I do think that by you're right that Biden can't just stay on the and he won't, and there won't be any staying on the sidelines. But uh I don't know who's gonna hold him to it. The problem is the Republicans are a very bad team to hold them to account. That was not true in 2011 with the Tea Party. They were actually a good team to hold them to hold Obama to account. A, they won huge, and B, they hadn't yet been corrupted by 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 DC politics. All those new new members of Congress, right? I mean, the disciplinary mechanism here is the market, and yeah. uh, you know, I, I do think right. Biden yeah, ultimately yeah. will have to look at the bond markets and at the stock market. Again, yeah. he's already, his economic ratings are so poor. His economic ma- management has been so poor. This would just be an added burden just on the history of, I mean, you know, the last time, the reason for the current standoff is Obama, of course, engaged in secret negotiations with Boehner in 2011. Right. And those negotiations ended up being terminated when basically, according to Boehner, Obama came out and asked for even more tax increases than Boehner thought that he could give, and that ended the deal. And so the default, uh, uh, the risk of default led to the sequester plan. So the Democrats look at that and say, okay, we're never negotiating again. But the truth is, I think the lesson to take from that is no secret negotiations, right? And Boehner, of course, didn't trust his own conference. That's why yeah. he was going to Boehner, you know, you yeah. read Boehner's memoir, which is quite entertaining, but it's clear that all these people show up after the 2010 election. He had no idea who they were. And quite frankly, yeah. he was kind of freaked out by them. Yeah. McCarthy, I do think, has a better idea of who his members are. And he understands it's a, yeah, the secret negotiation. He has a granular knowledge. Exactly. He has a so, granular knowledge of every single member. Of he his had to twist every and arm and to become speaker. Yeah. I, I, I'm a contrarian. I think he's actually done a pretty good job since getting into speaker in moving this conference toward an eventual debt ceiling increase with some wins. And also, you know, it's funny because you read all this coverage of McCarthy. And there are some complaints with the fact that the House hasn't done much. On the other hand, what the heck is the House going to do with the with the margin this small, with the Senate in control of the Democrats? I mean, with the Republican Party as divided as it is, what is it going to do? But in every article, 
you never find someone say that they're dis- Republicans say saying they're disappointed with McCarthy. They quite like him. So okay, listen, l- listen. You talked about the market. So I'm I got here the Dow Jones chart over the last five years. So when the day that Biden was inaugurated, the Dow stood at thirty. 30- 30,900. Today it is 33,530. I bring this up only to say that in the course of the Biden presidency, despite inflation, despite, you know, excess spend, all of that, or you could even say because of it, whatever, a lot of liquidity thrown in the market by government, I don't care, whatever. The market's actually gone up. The the Dow has gone up 10% in the course of his presidency. Now, this is where you're right and I'm wrong uh, going into the future, which is uh, there's a standoff and the Dow plunges and we default or we're very close to default or something and the Dow plunges 7,000 points. Biden will panic. This chart that I'm looking at is the reason that he can even run for re-election. People don't sort of factor this in because we're saying he gets bad marks in the economy and people have lost money and all of that. But the macro economy as measured by, you know, the stock market in which 150 or 160 million people or more, I think, have their, you know, savings and their 401ks and everything like that is ballasting him. It hasn't collapsed. He hasn't gone through a collapse and 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 that's where he will panic and that could be McCarthy's ace in the hole though I don't know what McCarthy can get that's where the four seat majority is such an impossibility here as a negotiating tool because he's got 17 different conflicts within the Republican conference over what kinds of cuts they will accept that he's going to go to Biden to demand like if you can't cut ethanol subsidies you can't cut anything. Ethanol subsidies are the worst thing that the United States government does. But there are 17 Republican members of Congress who are saying to him, I can't vote for this. I'll never get reelected in 2024. Just hand the Democrats an issue. Say in my district, say, you know, so-and-so voted to cut, uh, you know, our ethanol subsidies. Vote for me. You know, so if you can't cut ethanol, what are you going to cut? I don't, you know, so, you know, that's the thing. Biden's got this uh, terrible threat looming over him. And McCarthy has no uh, running room, as far as I can tell. I don't know what he negotiates. Tell me what he negotiates if things go where Biden says, okay, let's <laughs> go sit in a room together so a and, lot. and come up with a deal. And then five Republicans scuttle the deal. I think the two major asks are the rescission of the unspent COVID money. Right. And then basically that's the saying at saying at FY 22 levels. Right. So you stay, you just freeze spending for a year. I think that's right. And this is based on the great analyses by Liam Donovan um, that I, that I follow uh, on this subject. He's a very close Congress watcher. Um, I think if that's where you can get to, and then you have some negotiation over the budget, um, then you can get out of this situation. But I agree. We might not. My point is, we might not get out of this situation, and we might have a default, and then things are kind of up in the air. And I do think Biden might consider 
executive authority just to make to yeah. say we're going to pay the money because we have to pay the money. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, I do think that there is a path here. It's a very narrow path. It's one filled with obstacles. The first obstacle is getting this bill through the House in the next 24 hours. If they can do that, my confidence level that we might have a resolution to this crisis that you know doesn't wreck the global economy would go higher. Okay. Well, we'll see. Maybe we'll know tomorrow. I don't know. Maybe. You're saying 24 hours. So 24 hours from now, we will we will be doing another podcast because <laughs> it never ends. The fun <laughs> never ends. The news never ends. And the crushing morosity never ends. Although this is a day, as I said at the beginning, for a celebration of the uh, of the greatest miracle of the 20th century and maybe of the 21st century. Who Who knows? The ongoing... Um, experiment in uh, Zionism that has uh, that has succeeded far beyond uh, anyone's wildest uh, dreams in the um, in the two millennia uh, in which the the Jews uh, were uh, exilic, uh, diasporic, and stateless and powerless. So, with that, for Abe, Christine, and Matt, I'm John Pahortz. Keep the candle burning. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.